Well, good morning. Glad you're with us. If you're visiting again, we want to say thank you for being here and uh, glad you could join us. And if you're watching online, um, welcome. I'm glad you are here as well uh, and joining us. Would you bow your head in prayer as we um, continue our, our time of worship? Father, we come uh, into your presence and corporately like this, we gather together. Lord, you've called us to do that. You told us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And so thank you that we can do that. Thank you in this, even in this day and age of high tech, we can, we can meet um, and gather even if it's not right here. Father, um, I'm not sure about any of our hearts. Uh, we've sung two incredible songs just now that have put our thoughts upon you, and sometimes it takes uh, a while to, to kind of get ourselves into the proper frame of mind. I pray, Lord, that we haven't hurried through worship and continuing now. I pray, Father, you will um, do whatever it takes to grab our attention and, um, and focus upon you. For you are worthy, Father, and this holy gathering, this, this gathering of the body of Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would direct us and teach us and stir within us deeper affections for you. And we need that now, Father, as we open up your scriptures. I pray it in Christ's name, amen. Well, we begin uh, this morning a four-part series in uh, Romans chapter 8. One uh, Bible teacher said, if Holy Scripture was a ring, the epistle of Romans, the precious stone, then Romans chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of that jewel. The sparkling point of the jewel. Another commentator said that Romans 8 is undoubtedly the chapter of chapters for the life of of any believer in Jesus Christ. The chapter of chapters. David Jeremiah in his uh, study Bible says, Romans chapter 8 begins with no condemnation, it ends with no separation, and in between is no defeat. This is a great chapter, a very, very important chapter, and it's desperately needed in the days in which we live. As Jesus said, we are living, he said, in days of trouble. There will be great tribulation. Um, uncertain times, for sure. If you've paid attention to what's going on in our country this week, my goodness, what uncertain times that we're living in. Uh, Paul, the apostle, wrote in 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We live in a, in a world that is held in the grip of the evil one, and there's no question about that as we face pandemics and contentious elections and, and uh, you know, sin abounds in this world. Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. These are challenging times. But may I suggest this Sunday after a contentious election, these are, these are great times to live for believers in Jesus Christ. These are exciting days. They really are. Uh, 20, gee, was 26 years ago, Jim Annable, remember here, and I were in Romania. Five years after the fall of communism in Romania, and we were talking with the, uh, some church members there and, and believers there, and we were asking them, so how is it 
now that communism is gone? And to our surprise, the response was, oh, in communism, things were very good. I was like, what? And since communism has fallen, things are not so good. I said, what? And we probed that. Well, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that in positive times and good times, the church was focused on, there in Romania, they were saying that it was focused on uh, how we can better ourselves. Materialism had set in. Now they were free to, to pursue their own personal gains, and, and the, the vibrancy of the church was, was crushed. Folks, these are exciting days in which to live. Aren't we excited to see what God is going to do in, in these days ahead? And if, uh, you know, if it all breaks loose and the things that we feel like we want to see happen as believers in Jesus Christ don't, I can remember a professor of mine from Dallas Seminary coming back from a sabbatical one time. He spoke in the first chapel of seminary, and he said um, he was in an area that was experiencing great persecution where he had spent a sabbatical. It was places in northern India. And he said, I'm coming back home to the United States, and I'm wondering how in the world can we start a persecution? Because the vibrancy of the church just seems to grow in times of uh, difficulties and challenges. Exciting days in which we live. I really believe that. Because in a world that's fallen apart, Christians can't be fallen apart. And that's where Romans chapter 8 comes in. Because the truths we're going to look at over the next few weeks in Romans chapter 8 are so crucial to help believers in Jesus Christ not just survive, but to thrive. These things are written so that we can be the people of God in the dark times in which we live. So take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. And it begins with such a, a wonderful verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 begins with these words, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What a great way to start, especially if we understand the meaning of these words. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you've got a King James Version or a New King James Version, you'll notice there's an extra phrase on there. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then the King James says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Uh, just a real quick aside, that little extra phrase in the King James Version is there because many, many ancient manuscripts include that phrase, and the translators of the King James Version included that phrase because so many translations uh, or manuscripts had that phrase. If you've got a New American Standard Version or an NIV or an ESV or other, many other translations, uh, they're basing some translations off manuscripts that didn't include that phrase. Now, if you jump down to verse 4, you'll see that phrase is included in verse 4, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So whether we see it in verse 1 or down in verse 4, uh, it doesn't really matter to me because we're going to get to it, and it is a crucial phrase, a very crucial phrase to understand. But I want us in verse 1 just to look at that word condemnation. That's a key term. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, it's a legal term. It came out of a, the, a legal um, mindset. You've no doubt seen it played out on, on TV in some courtroom drama. The, the, the jury files back into the courtroom, and the judge asks, members of the jury, have you reached a verdict? 
And the foreman stands and says, yes, Your Honor, we have. And so the judge asks, what is your verdict? And there's that poignant pause, and then the foreman of the jury says, we, the jury, find the defendant guilty as charged. And then the judge turns to the defendant and says, please rise and face the court. The guilty party stands before the judge, and the judge now passes sentence. And the judge says, it is the sentence of the court that you be, and then he details out whatever the penalty is that the guilty party must now serve. The courtroom. Well, in the Bible, God is both the jury and the judge. Because of our sin, He lowers the gavel and He says, guilty as charged. Over in Romans chapter 3 and chapter 5, we've read these verses, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, or through one man's sin into the world and death through sin. So death spread to all because all sinned, guilty as charged. And as the supreme judge of the universe, God then passes sentence. And in chapter 5, verse 18, Paul said this, So then as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men. There's that word, same one in verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. But the judge has lowered his gavel in verse, chapter 5, verse 18, and says the sentence is, condemnation. Now that word, condemnation, is a very important word. It's a Greek word, katakrima, katakrima. It is a legal term, uh, very interesting and a very complex term. It conveys the idea of a, a verdict of judgment. You're guilty as charged. That's the judge's perspective. But more than that, it conveys the sentence that is being meted out, that is being conveyed, the sentence now that the guilty party must serve out. And what is that sentence? Well, he continues in chapter 5, and he tells us it is the sentence that sin and death will reign over you. You, as a sinner, will now serve sin. You will be under the servitude of sin. Through one transgression there resulted in the servitude of sin for all mankind. God lowers the gavel, he says, in the courtroom of his perfect law, sinful mankind, you are charged guilty. And because you are guilty, the sentence of this court is that you will be consigned to serve sin as your master for the rest of your life. Katakrima, it's that word that describes this sentence of servitude to sin. Sin will be your master. Uh, now, the good news is, as we've seen in the book of Romans, Romans is about good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is that God loves us. He loves sinful world. Yes, He's lowered His gavel. He's condemned us to serve sin, to have sin be our master, to reign over us, sin and death. But He loves us. And He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to pay the penalty for our sin. 
to serve, as it were, on that cross, that sentence of sin. Paul would write in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified, as we've seen, is that word to be declared right. So in God's court of law, as His Son has taken our sin upon Himself and has been judged in our place as our substitute, our sin transferred to Him in that great exchange on the cross, He brings righteousness over to our account so that the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, righteousness, Christ's righteousness, is brought over to our account. And God, the righteous judge, now looks upon us and He sees not our sin because that's been paid for by Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Christ. The moment we put our faith in Christ, that gift becomes ours, the gift of Christ's righteousness. And therefore, having been declared right, justified, having been literally acquitted of all crimes, we have peace with God. So not only, though, have I received Christ's righteousness as a free gift in that moment, in that judicial law court, and God has judiciously declared me to be right by seeing the righteousness of His Son, not only has that happened, but Romans chapter 6 went on to explain something even more that old sin as master is now broken. That old inner me that was tied to sin and mastered by sin and death has been brought to crucifixion with Christ. And in Romans chapter 6, we read great truths like knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ so that our body of sin might be done away with so that we no longer are slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ. The moment we trust Christ as our Savior in this mystical, supernatural, unseen sort of way, sometimes unfelt even, the moment we place our faith in Christ, we're placed out of that that sinful realm that we were born with, that old nature, and we are transferred into a new realm. We are placed, as it were, in Christ Jesus. He becomes our life. When Jesus died, it was as if we died. When Jesus was buried, it's as if we were buried. When Jesus was raised to newness of life, it was as if we were raised to newness of life. That's Romans chapter 6. This is the good news. And so in Romans chapter 6, we've seen this is truth that we have to affirm as believers in Jesus Christ. We've got to know this stuff. We have to know it. We have to believe it. I am freed from sin. That inner me is now new. It's been raised up to newness of life in Christ. I have been set free. I no longer have to serve sin. Praise God, I've been delivered. But as we move to chapter 7, you'll recall, oops, I still sin. I still sin. And even the Apostle Paul admitted it. Romans chapter 7 is truth that we have to admit. We still struggle with sin. The inner me, says Paul, is encased in an outer me. And that outer me, this body of, of sin and death, is still very susceptible still very vulnerable to the temptations, to the allurements, 
to put me away from God, to, to cause me to rebel against God. In Romans chapter 7, we find Paul. We find him struggling. He said in verse 21, I find then the principle, evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with God in the inner man. Well, sure you would, because that inner man has been raised up to newness of life in Christ. We're, we're new, inner me, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And he concludes by saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? There's conflict. The inner me has been raised up to newness of life in Christ. I am forever changed at the core essence of my being because of Jesus. But that inner me is encased in this earth suit of sin, this body of sin and the, the desires, the temptations, and how all that works in that spiritual realm can cause me to still live in defeat. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? And while I no longer have to be enslaved to sin because I've been set free because of my position in Jesus, I don't have to. But there are times, just like the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, that I find myself, oh, good night. I said, what? I did what? I thought, what? Oh, wretched man that I am. That brings us to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 clearly is the, the sparkling point of the jewel that is the book of Romans. As chapter 7 ended on that note, who will set me free from this body of sin, Paul said there, but thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an assurance of victory for every believer in Jesus Christ. Paul understood that. So he said in verse 25, thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1 then picks up and he says, therefore. What I just said, Paul said, in Jesus Christ there's victory. Thanks be to him. Therefore, there is now in Jesus Christ, no katakrima. There is that sentence of death is we've been released from. There is therefore now no verdict of judgment. It's been removed because Jesus took it. But more importantly, there is no sentence. The sentence has been paid. It's been lived out in that moment on the cross by Jesus. And there is therefore now no mastery of sin in my life legally speaking, because of my position in Jesus. There is no condemnation, no judgment of God. There is now freedom from serving sin as my master. No agony of defeat. There is now the opportunity for the joy of victory, of living out day by day victory in Jesus Christ because sin's mastery has been broken. That's what Paul is saying. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Jesus Christ. Now, he continues in verse 2, building on that assurance, and he says, for, so he's given this explanation, verse 2, 
for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free, past tense, has set you free from the law of sin and death. The sentence to be served out by fallen humanity to be ma have sin master us, it's been broken the moment we trusted Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation. Why? Because the law of the Spirit of Jesus Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. And now he introduces the third person of the Trinity, the central character, you could say, in Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been mentioned twice in the first seven chapters of Romans. Two times is all. In Romans chapter 8, he's referred to 19 times. The central focus is the Holy Spirit. God works His work through His Spirit to have us live out in our freedom in Christ. What's the basis of that victory? Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condensed Him in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Paul is writing to believers in Rome. There were Gentile believers, but there was a lot of Jewish believers who were holding on to that Old Testament uh, law, the law of Moses. This is what God has said. That's the law. Uh, we have to obey it. We, we want to serve God. We, we have to obey this, these commandments. And try and try and try as hard as they could, um, they couldn't. It's like, well, I thought I was set free from sin. I, I just can't seem to obey and please God. Well, what the law could not do, weak as it was, God did. You see, the law was incapable of bringing about that which it commanded. The law could command and say, this is how we are to live, but it couldn't bring about the life to make it possible. It could only condemn because it would put the spotlight on our failures. This is the standard, live it, I can't, condemnation. The law obeying commandments cannot bring about freedom from sin. But, he says in verse 3, what the law could not do, weak as it was, God did. He did it by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. You see, folks, telling people what not to do or telling people to do something is going to ultimately end up in futility apart from the Holy Spirit and God's power, and that's where Paul is going here. Just to tell people, stop doing that, you need to be doing this, is going to lead to utter futility. We need a power source separate from us. So what the law could not do, God did by sending His Son. So that, look at verse 4, what's the result? The requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What? 
You mean that standard of righteousness that God says, obey this? The requirement of the law can actually be fulfilled in me? Yep. Yes, it can. What did the law require? We could sum it up in one word, love. God's law says love God perfectly, love humanity. Love. And the requirement of the law, Paul is saying right here, can be fulfilled in us. It's an amazing truth. Spiritual victory can be experienced by every believer in Jesus Christ. Spiritual victory over sinful thoughts. Spiritual victory over discouragement. Spiritual victory over that addictive behavior. Spiritual victory over that that bitterness that still seems to grip our soul. Spiritual victory over that anger that still seems to rear its ugly head. Spiritual victory over those vices. Spiritual victory over the discouragement of living in this life. Spiritual victory can actually be experienced in my life because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, my identity, my position in Him. And as Charles Wesley wrote a couple hundred years ago in that great old hymn, O Four Thousand Tongues to Sing, in the fourth verse, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean, and His blood availed for me. The requirement of the law can be fulfilled in Mark Carey, of all people, not because of me, but because of Him, because of Christ. But there's one condition. Look at verse 4 again. The requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. My responsibility to walk according to the Spirit, not to walk according to the flesh. Now the sentence, the way Paul wrote that, as he wrote it in the Greek language, is constructed in such a way that the certainty, the certainty of living out that righteousness is absolutely guaranteed if the condition is met. The certainty that the requirement of the law, that I could be transformed and that my life can be exuding that love for God and love for others is guaranteed if I walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. So obviously, obviously, it's very important to figure out how to walk according to the Spirit. If that seems to be the key that unlocks or unleashes the requirement of the law of love, to be lived out in my life, we better understand what that means. Now, it's important enough for Paul, he wrote about it in the very first epistle that he wrote, Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he said, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now, Paul wrote that in the Greek language in such a way for great emphasis because he used two negatives. In our English grammar, that's a no-no. You don't use two negatives. In the Greek language, Paul put two negatives together for emphasis. And so he says, I say walk by the Spirit, and you will in no way impossible to carry out the desires of the flesh, those sinful desires of the flesh. What Paul is saying is there is a power source 
there is a power source available to us as Christians that if it's appropriated and utilized, we can experience the fullness of the Christian life the way God intended it to be lived. Success in the Christian life comes down to the power source that we're appropriating. And that power source is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. There is a path to daily victory, spiritually speaking, in our Christian life. Let's keep reading. Verse 5, further explanation. For those who walk or are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Here's the path to victory. If we are walking according to the Spirit, that comes about as we, he says, set our minds on the things of the Spirit. If we set our minds on the things of the flesh, then we're going to experience the defeat in our Christian life. For, verse 6, the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset. Here's the path to victory. Walking according to the Spirit or walking according to the flesh. It's a choice we make. But if we walk according to the Spirit, we are going to experience the vitality, the joy, life and peace that God has offered us in Jesus Christ. But in order to walk by the Spirit, we have to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. That little phrase, set our minds, is a Greek word, phronao, which doesn't mean just thinking about something, just, okay, I'm going to think about this. It's far more involved. It has to do with our affections. It has to do with what captures our heart. To set our mind on something means you, you, you not only gravitate towards it, you, you, you wrap your being around it. You contemplate it. It's your passion. You set your mind on something. The other alternative, set your mind on things of the flesh. Now, that's kind of very natural. You see someone get the glory we start to stew on it, we set our mind, and all of a sudden jealousy shows up. You hear something bad about someone you really don't like, and inside there's this kind of inner, yeah. We set our minds on the things of the flesh. Negative thinking, oh, how am I going to pay that bill? Oh, the doctor's report, what's going on in my body? Health. Results of an election. Oh, my and we can set our minds and we begin to stew and dwell on those things. That's setting our minds on the things of the flesh, complaining about bad circumstances, complaining about where the stock market's going instead of where lost souls are going. Setting our minds on things of the flesh rather than things on the Spirit. I'll talk about that in just a moment. So what are we to remember? Again, verse 6. If you set your mind on things of the flesh, it's death. You realize that, we've talked about this many times, you realize that there are born-again believers going to heaven, heaven-bound. They're walking around with their heart pumping blood through their body. They are as live as could be. They've got a pulse. But spiritually speaking, 
It's the stench of death, sin. Just complaining, griping, worrisome, joyless, loveless, people you don't want to be around. We'll have to be around each other in heaven. But it's here on earth that Paul is talking about. And believers in Jesus Christ can actually experience death, the, the separation of the vitality of Jesus in our life. If we set our minds on things of the Spirit, it is death. But if we set our minds on things of the Spirit, if we set our minds on things of the flesh, it's death. If we set our minds on things of the Spirit, he said it is life and peace, verse 6. Life and and peace. And he reaffirms this. Verse 7, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to. That fleshly mindset, it's, it's hostility to God. It's, it's not something God looks down upon and says, oh, hey, that's, that, well, you know, boys will be boys. And those, he said, are, who are in the flesh can't even please God. Now, that little phrase, being in the flesh, he's talking about unbelievers. He said, why would we want to act like unbelievers? But he said, you're not in, verse 9, the flesh. You're in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't even belong to him. And so what Paul is saying here is, there is no reason on God's green earth why we as believers in Jesus Christ have to live out the stench of death. We are born again. We've been brought to newness of life in Christ. We have the spirit of the living God. We have the power source right within us to live out in a compelling way, life and peace. Why would we be content with the stench of death in the Christian life? And then he says in verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness, because of Christ's righteousness. And if the Spirit, verse 11, of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now, yes, one day every believer in Jesus Christ is going to be raised up and we're going to get a new body. Hallelujah. We'll live in eternity forever with a new body and a resurrected spirit and that's coming. But that's not, I think, what Paul is talking about here. This is in the context of living out the Christian life, Romans chapter 8. It's a context of sanctification. And yes, it's true, one day we'll experience that resurrection. This old body will be put off and we'll get a new one. But what Paul is saying in verse 11 is that if you've got the Spirit of the living God within you and you're walking according to that Spirit by setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, well, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is going to give life to your mortal bodies. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, can experience that spiritual resurrection. And that's what he said back in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. If we've been buried with Christ, if we've been raised up with Christ, we too can begin to experience the newness of life in Christ. He'll give that life to us, to walk in newness of life. The key, let's think this through again. The moment we trust Christ as a personal Savior, the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in our life. We are brought to newness of life in Christ, this inner man. 
Yes, I still struggle because it's encased in a body of sin. And oh boy, temptations can come. I can watch the news and all of a sudden I find myself in a spiritual funk. And I can start grossing, grousing about all that stuff or whatever and, and life can just be all of a sudden, ugh. But I'm new. I'm a new creature in Christ. I've got the Holy Spirit living within me. And so as I walk in His power and appropriate His strength in my life, I can experience life and peace. But in order to walk by the Spirit, I've got to set my mind on the things of the Spirit. Because the moment I start setting my mind on the fleshly things and I get consumed with all the news and all the stuff that's going on or all the pain and all the stuff that's happening in my life, all the bad circumstances, all of a sudden I find myself in this death spiral. And I am not a nice person to live with at that point. And don't look so pious, neither are you. But we have the Spirit of the living God. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. The requirement of the law can now be fulfilled in us if we walk by that power source. But that power source is never going to be utilized in our life if I kept setting my mind on the things of the flesh. So we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. How do we do that? How do we do that? Let me wrap this up with, the, with the, the, these five, shall I call them, spiritual disciplines. How do I set my mind on the things of the Spirit? First of all, confession. Confession. It's a heartfelt acknowledgement. It's agreement with God. Father, but my preoccupation with, with, with an election that maybe I didn't like or, or with, with a pandemic that seems to control my life or with uh, this person that is in my life that I don't really like, Father, forgive me, because I have been occupied by that. I have not been consumed by you. Confession. Second of all, consecration. Consecration. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we'll get to it in a few weeks. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, it's your, it's your reasonable spiritual service of worship. Consecrate your bodies, yourselves, that, that outer man that says, Father, may my outer man be in line with my inner man, my real me. Paul would say another word, similarly, it was control, consecration or control, Ephesians 5.18, walk by the Spirit. He says, don't be drunk with wine, that's dissipation, but be filled with, controlled by the Spirit. Let Him take over those thoughts. Ask Him. Invite Him into the day-to-day -day existence of our life. Father, I can't fulfill the requirement of the law. I want to love you. I don't want this to, to occupy my life, but I, I can't make it work. And God is saying, of course you can. You were never designed to make it work. That's why I gave you the power source, the Holy Spirit. So we consecrate ourselves to him. Lord, have thine own way. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Thirdly, communion. Communion. Walking by the Spirit is based on a relationship. Communing with him, not on a regimen. 
I mean, the last thing we need to do is walk out of here and say, okay, bye, George, and we make our list for Monday morning. I'm going to get up at, you know, 6, 10, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to read the Bible this long, and I'm going to pray this much, and, and check, 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 and bye, George, by the time I'm done, I'll be filled with the Spirit of God. And, I'll, and then the dog comes in, and you give it a whack. Or the coffee was bitter, and you, you know. No, living the Christian life is not a regimen, folks. It's a relationship with the living God. It's coming to Him and saying, Lord, I can't do this, but I love you, Lord, and my love is not very good. Help me, Lord. Help me to walk by faith. I can't do it. Lord, help me to love that person. Help me to be this person, Father. And all throughout the day, okay, and if it means not turning on the news, then don't turn it on. If it means rearranging some things in our life, then let's rearrange it. But let's go to Him in a moment of constant communion and say, Lord, I need Thee every hour. Every hour I need Thee. It's communion with Him. It's spending time in, in His Word and in, in worshipful prayer and talking with Him. He's a real person. It's not a regimen. It's a relationship. Fourth, conformity. It's obedience. It's simply a resolve to say, all right, now I'm going to step out in faith and I'm going to obey your word. And so we're in his word, we're studying, and we see the commands of God. And it doesn't say we sit back and say, I can't do that, so I'm going to sit on my hands and just sit here, Lord, until you mysteriously move me. No, we say, all right, Lord, this is what it says. So I'm going to take that step of faith and I'm going to obey this, but not I, but the power of Christ within me. We resolve to obey God's Word, to apply it into our life. When we come to understand God's direction for our life, we move in that direction, but we do not move in the direction in our own strength. One final thing, community. How do we set our minds on the things of the Spirit? We surround ourselves with fellow believers who help us run the race with endurance. Because, folks, there are times where we need somebody to help rearrange our eyes we can so easily get our eyes not fixed on jesus and sometimes we need believers to come into our lives to say hey mark what's what's going on in your life right now because what i just heard is more the stench or felt or smelled as more the stench of death than it is life and peace and in love we 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 encourage one another we pray for one another we come alongside one another, and, and we'll give you opportunities to do that. If you're not involved with a life of believers in Jesus Christ, we'll help you do that. We'll help you get connected to a, a small group the best that we can. I mean, you can call the church office, and we'll find some place that you can be a part of. We've got women's ministries. We've got men's ministries. We've got small groups. But folks, we've got to be in community. We need it. That helps us set our minds on things of the Spirit. And as we set our minds on things of the Spirit... We find ourselves walking and living our life according to the Spirit. And as we live our life according to the Spirit, we're finding life and peace and joy. That's the Christian life, the victory that is ours. And so when the Apostle Paul cried out in Romans chapter 7, 24, who will rescue me? Who will set me free from this body of sin? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the answer. It's in a relationship with Him and the power of His Holy Spirit as we live out our life, setting our minds on Him 
and walking our life according to his power and strength. Hey, how well did it go for you this week? That is, that, that setting your mind on things of the Spirit. How well did it go for you? Now, I'm so grateful to God that he offers me life and peace. He offers it to anyone. First of all, it comes by putting our faith and trust in Jesus, having a relationship with him. Do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? And then it's, it's living in light of that by understanding these very words that 2,000 years ago God was so gracious and loving to move upon a, a man by the name of Paul to pick up that quill and write on that parchment those words. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just your kindness to, towards us. Thank you for your grace, Father, that makes all this possible in our life. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit that can take faltering and feeble words of a man and make sense somehow in our spirit as we reread these passages and come before you and say, Lord, teach me. Because I don't want to live the stench of death in my life. I want life and peace. I, I want what you have secured for me at the cross. And so, Father, I do that work in our life. That in these challenging days, these days of darkness, God's people will be the light of the world because the world desperately needs to see it. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.